if they don't feel that you've got their back, if they don't feel they can have that autonomy, then it's okay for a while. Like when people are new to the business, they do need you to hold their hand. You shouldn't lean out too much because they need you to show the ropes. There comes a point where great folks, they need to have the space to grow because they're pushing. They want to become you. They want to become the CEO. And that's exactly the kind of people I need to work for me. So a lot of my job is actually leaning out and creating that space and having the wisdom to know when to lean in. You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers, and leaders. With thanks to our partner Connect Now, Elevate brings you the best tools, thinking, and strategies to elevate your results. To get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast, visit joineliteagent.com. And for more information about how Connect Now can make moving easier on your clients, visit connectnow.com.au. Here is your host, Samantha McLean. Welcome to another episode of the Elevate podcast where we delve into some of the most interesting minds in business and in real estate. Someone who's had a pretty big year in 2022 is Jermaine's John Fong. Featured in our 2022 Real Estate Industry Influencers list, he is the Chief Revenue Officer of the company and has been on the podcast before talking about his extensive background and lessons from both Uber and Google. So today we're checking in with him for an episode of the Leadership Diaries, as well as to find out a little bit about Domain's plans for 2023. So John, welcome back to the show. It is an absolute pleasure to be back here, Sam. Happy to meet you and thank you for having me back. I was going to say, Happy New Year and Gongji Fa Toy, the year of the rabbit. Yes, that's actually a pretty good pronunciation. Again, I can't actually speak Chinese properly, so it sounded good to me. Good hands on Choi to you and your listeners. And yeah, Happy New Year. Yeah, amazing. Can you believe it's been about a year since we last spoke? <laughs> no. <laughs> and that was just a little bit after you'd started at that's Domain. Yeah, yeah. So one year on, how's it going? What were some of the highlights? I mean, so many highlights. Uh, I think it's just been amazing part of this industry and appreciate it for what it is, you know, building hopes, inspiring confidence across the industry. It's been wonderful to come into Domain. It's a real family place. A lot of the leadership folks have young families as well. So it's been much more than just a professional set of associations. And wonderful to come to this team and appreciate just how much, and obviously it's not just applies to Domain, but so many of the prop techs around, how much good intent that there is here, how much desire there is to help Australians fulfill their investing, renting, buying and selling hopes and dreams. So that's been exciting. And then I think on a professional industry note, we've really ridden the whole wave in the last 12 months. If we think about 12 months ago, it was the peak. The industry could do no wrong. Nothing was happening. And now we've the steepest decline we've seen for, for many decades. That's been fascinating to go through. You know, I think Warren Buffett has this phrase that when the tide goes out, you can see he's not wearing swimmers. And I think that's been a real test for us as leaders to be like, hey, what kind of a culture have we built? How well are we supporting our people and our customers? So it's been a challenging or ended up being a challenging year, and I just feel grateful to be a part. Yeah, it is. Well, I mean, you've got a front row seat where you are, not just yeah. from a domain angle, but also you're a property investor yourself. Yeah. And as you just mentioned, there has been, you know, sort of a great deal of ups and downs. What are the challenges that you think might face the average Australian in 2023 when it comes to property? You know, it just really depends. There are so many different kinds of average Australians. And I think what, you know, a lot of my job is to really understand the various personas in the market. You know, so for example, if you are not yet on the housing ladder and you are renting, whether you intend to buy or not, it is the tightest rental market we've ever seen, right? And it, rents have gone up a long way. So that's tough. You're having trouble trying to find your dream rental house. That's kind of one average Australian challenge. 
I think for the average Australian who's bought, it depends when you have bought. For those who bought a long time ago, they're still facing challenges. No one's underwater with regards to equity, uh, not to people who purchased a long time ago anyway. But certainly the mortgage repayments are very significant. For those people who've been you know, around the 70s and 80s, it won't seem anything unusual. But for those who've been investing in the last 20, 30 years, it is very unusual. So there's a lot of stress regards to that. For those people who have bought recently, you know, and may we now be experiencing pretty steep declines, and for some who are rolling off, you know, so those fixed rate mortgages, there is that shock of, you know, you come off the fixed rate mortgage and now onto a, a much higher than expected rate. So, you know, we are seeing in the market some signs of distress. I think due to some of the reforms that were undertaken a few years ago, it's going to be less than what it could have been and what it was back in 2007, 2008. But that's a pretty significant issue. And we are seeing, you know, some sellers come into the market in part due to some of the stresses they're feeling. So for the average Australian, the average investor, it's a few different stories going on, but there is a constant of stress and volatility and a measure of uncertainty. Yeah, so we will see a fairly different year in property this year in 2023 to 2022. Are you feeling that way as well? You know, it's hard to be in the prediction business because certainly if you told me what the year would like, the year after COVID or after the peak of COVID would have been, I would have not expected it to be one of the most amazing and explosive years ever. Mm. So I'm hoping that the mood of the rest of the year is very different to the sentiment right now. But based on what we can see in terms of, you know, we have a pretty large economics department, we're constantly thinking about these things. We are waiting for two measures of inflation to come down. The US one, which has been declined for the last six months, and the Australian one, which is not in decline, which, you know, may not even have peaked. Until those decline, we're probably not going to see interest rates stop rising, and we probably won't see them decline, which is what we probably really need to see that pent-up demand and the pent-up supply of houses hit the market. Because as long as interest rates are high and prices are dropping, people are going to think twice you know, about selling. Now, we would encourage folks to sell, and that's partly our business model as well. And 80% of sales are still happening. People are getting born, divorced, empty nesters. These sales, these non-discretionary sales are still happening. But certainly, when there is nervousness, uncertainty, when there's change, people hold off. And our hypothesis is that until some of the underlying causes of inflation are solved, for example, the consumer spending, for example, you know, how relatively easy it is to get a job, you know, versus historical levels. Those things need to cool down a little for inflation to cool, for interest rates to peak, and therefore for house prices to recover, and therefore volumes to return. So our hypothesis is that won't happen soon, but it may happen, you know, sometime this year. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the hallmarks of last year as well, rather, was we really saw an exacerbation, if you like, of the rental crisis, you know, like lots of people, you know, unable to get homes and investors leaving the market. I've been asking a lot of people lately on their thoughts for helping to solve that obviously took us a long time to get to this point and it's probably going to take a long time out. But, you know, I'm sort of thinking with all of those impressive companies on your CV, you're you're bound to have some thoughts on the topic. So. What are yours? No, thank you for asking, Sam. It's something that, you know, I'm pretty personally passionate about. It's something at at Domain, you know, with our mantra of trying to inspire confidence in in life's most important property decisions. It's something we think of a lot. What would it take to inspire more confidence and reduce the stress? And you referenced some of my past roles, you know, at Uber and at Google, where, you know, I looked after the Google Cloud Marketplace. And I think the key word there is marketplace. What we are doing, Australian real estate is one of the great marketplaces in Australia. And the way to think about marketplace is very simply supply and demand. And as long as there is a mismatch between supply and demand, 
you know, you are going to have problems. If you have too much demand relative supply, then prices are going up. There's lots of stress. If you too have too much supply relative demand, prices are going to plummet, right? And when we're somewhere in the middle, we're in a different spot for selling and renting. But if you think about for renting, the issue is the number of people who are demanding rental apartments and houses greatly exceeds the amount of supply. That's the current state. And if you look forward, particularly with the huge migration plans we have in Australia, which I think is awesome, right? And if you think about people who are maybe staying at home or looking to relocate or breaking out of their houses or graduating or things like that, the demand is only going to increase and the supply is not increasing at the same rate. So that to me is the economics of the situation. And the reason I raise it in that framework is therein, I think, lies the solution. Because you have to ask the question, okay, if demand is outstripping supply, can we suppress demand or how can we unlock supply? And I think suppressing demand is probably the wrong thing to do. You could suppress demand. You could suppress demand. You could stop all migration, which is what happened in COVID, you know, for example. You could, you know, really encourage people to be sharing houses. But already the number of people we have who are dwelling is actually pretty low relative to the capacity of those dwellings. In the North Shore where I live, you have these giant houses. In some cases, there's just two people in there because the incentives are, you know, to hold onto your home, to not make a transaction, to avoid the stamp duty hit. And so demand side levers, I think, are probably not the right thing for Australia as a country. So really that's supply. And to me, it's about two things. How can you encourage more people for when it's the right thing to do, they should put their house in the market? And that's at reducing transaction costs that will increase supply. And the second thing is, how do you get more stuff built? A lot of my time I spend with developers. We have some amazing developers who use the management platform, you know, companies like CBRE. And the thing about if you're a developer, you have to be like an entrepreneur. You are an entrepreneur. You have to see this apartment block years in the future when you're just looking at this vacant lot or this old thing to get demolished or things like that. And like being an entrepreneur like yourself, Sam, you have to believe it. You have to go, oh my goodness, I can see this apartment block happening. I can see the people living in it, living with their families. I can envisage it. Because you know, over the next five years, as you go through that process of trying to get approvals, renovate, build, you're going to get knocked back time after time after time. Approvals take a long time. Building costs will go up. Laborers will be expensive. And you know it. That's what you signed up for. But you're ultimately an evangelist. And I've been inspired by spending time with some of these developers because they have to see and exist in the future before anyone else is going to meet them there. And if I had one thing to do with supply is there's a lot of opportunity for us. Everyone wants, in the world wants to live in Sydney and Melbourne, in the capital cities that we have. These are places where people want to be. In our regional centers, you know, people want to be there, people from the cities. And of course, in Gold Coast, there's always migration to the Gold Coast from places. People want to be there. How can we make sure that supply at the different price levels is happening? And you look across the board, it's about reducing transaction costs. It's about improving the development process. It's about improving ways that developers can manage their costs, giving them predictability. If you imagine the hundred things they have to go through over the next five years to see a vision come into reality, how do we make them easier and hold their hand? Because we need these folks to supply the supply that Australians will need to make us a big and successful country. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to do the leadership diaries today, but I was just wondering if we could nerd out for a little bit, you know. Oh, please. Sorry, I already started nerding out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, in an economic sense, but I mean in a technology sense now. Oh, please. Let's do it. Just as we speak, well, you know, like a couple of months ago, ChatGPT was unleashed on the world, November the 30th, 2022. And I sort of think that's changed the game a lot for a lot of people because they've made it free. So that means... You don't need to be rich for a subscription. It's kind of democratized AI in a way that we've never seen before. (laughs) Certainly I haven't seen in my life. What do you think of it? How do you think it might 
impact business, real estate, et cetera? Oh, my goodness. ChatGPT is super cool. And let me make a few disclosures here. I have invested in Microsoft, which is now a large shareholder in OpenAI, which is the company that invested ChatGPT. And as we spoke before, I was at Google for a long time. I'm still a Google stockholder. And for those of you who might see, the Google share price has actually taken quite a hit since ChatGPT has come along because of fears of what it will mean for the Google search engine. So I have a bit of skin in the game on both sides. And to me, it's just fascinating to be part of technology playing out in the world. I want to make some of those disclosures. You know, the best way to understand ChatGPT, for those of you who haven't used it, is it's a really, really smart Google. You can talk to it like a human. You can have a conversation like a human. And it will address you not as a series of links or pictures or videos, as Google tends to, but actually in text and pictures. And if you want to, you can read it out in a voice that's appropriate to the answer, which can be very, very creepy. And so it's very, very advanced intelligence, right? And so the question that I will typically ask is, when I see something that's really cool, is what are the business applications that people are paying for that this will now displace? And I'll give you a parallel example. Many of you play with virtual reality. Right? So Facebook, Google, other companies really invested in virtual reality recently, or you know, the HoloLens and, and things of that nature, and Microsoft has done that. The metaverse is what Zuckerberg is launching. Virtual reality was around in the 80s. I still remember going to, to Expo in 1988 in Gold Coast and doing these like virtual reality things. Like, wow, it's super cool. But the reality is the reason why virtual reality has not really taken off yet in any mainstream form is because it is not displacing things that people will pay for. The only place where it kind of has slightly done so is where people can wear virtuality goggles and it helps them do maintenance and then you can take down the cost of your maintenance contract. And so with ChatGBT, the question is, what are things that people are paying for today that instead of paying for, they can use ChatGBT for? And that is the kind of trillion dollar question. As it pertains to real estate, there's a very interesting debate, I think, about you know listings. You know, you have a write-up of a listing. And yesterday, I actually put it at an address to my house and said, write a listing, write a sales pitch for this house. And it did like a half-decent job. It was not as good as a real estate agent, but the thing it might have done, and there's companies like Jasper.ai that are doing similar to this, it probably wrote a first draft that a real estate agent come on board and make into a really good second or third draft. And so you ask yourself the question, can you make money from that? And the answer is maybe, maybe, right? It depends on how low the, the quality is. Like, does it say, if it saved a real estate agent an hour per listing, definitely. If it saves you five or 10 minutes, maybe, depending on how it injects into the workflow with how much it costs. So that's where I see, I'll call it kind of the first steps of journalism. It is not yet the stage where it can write some, it can write some really cool stuff, right? But I don't think it can replace journalism or anywhere close to that yet. But it may save journalists time. And if there's a commercial model for that, that's where you'll start to see that virtuous cycle of people using it and therefore more money coming in and the product getting better. Yeah. At the moment, we're kind of, I wouldn't say grappling with it, but I've said to my team, you know, use it by all means. But, you know, I think there are ethical issues with it too. I mean, we're sort of co-authoring stuff. If we've had help from the robot, we're actually... <laughs> That's true. So the question that sort of is in my mind that moves on from that is, all right, so let's say you've saved eight minutes by using ChatGPT to write a property listing description and maybe times that by however many listings you've got. I think the real key to unlocking productivity in all of this will be how you use that time that you save. There will be some real estate businesses, I think, that will take that with both hands and go, all right, I'm going to do whatever it is. I'm going to do, create a great experience, whatever it is. But what are your thoughts? You know, and Sam, we had more time. I actually wanted to ask you about how your team are finding it. Like, to me, that's the real test. And you can just see by their actions. If people end up using it and it's actually saving them meaningful time, then it's a winner. And if it's not, then it's, it's for now, it's a fad. 
you know, the word that he describes, the, and I've had over the past year, you've talked about what I've done, I've probably met about a thousand real estate agents. It's been amazing. And I think it has really taught me what differs from the okay, the good to the great. And if I could say it's one thing, it is leverage. It's leverage. The best real estate agents work how to make the maximum value every minute of their time. That's why I have these teams of amazing people who are finding the lead for them. So all they're doing is the appraisal and maybe you know the relationship on key things, but everything else they've leveraged. And so I would say for the top 20, 25% real estate agents, I'm not worried about what they'll do with that marginal time because they will find a way to convert that marginal time into just more listings effectively. You turn that to demand generation and they'll sell more and they'll make you know, an extra 5% in their GCI. That's where it's going to go. And if you think about our strategy at Domain, we obviously want to be have a large audience and have people find, a large group of people, we have to find the, the house they want. A lot of our other strategy when it comes to real-time agent, all these SaaS products that we have, it's all about helping agents be twice as effective in half the time. Because we know the best agents will turn that time into more listings and more money. So I'm less concerned about that. If it truly saves time, it will pay for itself. Yeah, absolutely. So finally, before we crack into the leadership yeah, yeah. stories, and I know you and I could probably talk all day about this stuff, <laughs> um, but I just want to sort of ask a quick question about Domain, yes. actually. So what's on the agenda for 2023 for Domain? What are some of the things that you can talk about that we might see from Domain this year? There's many, many exciting things. I can't talk about all of them. I'm kind of bursting at the seams for it. We're very fortunate to acquire a company called RealBase last year. It's run by a guy called Frank Grief, who's now part of my, my leadership team. Amazing CEO. You should hear his story one day. He was a chef, right? And now he's you know, running a business that was purchased by, by Domain. We have been looking to bring along their products. You know, they have this wonderful social media targeting product. You know, they have these products like RealHub and CampaignTrack, which help people put together their vendor-paid advertising. We are looking to integrate those products and we're looking to bring it in so we can ultimately save more real estate agents' time. So that's a big thing for us, which is all about whether it's our product, a real-based product, you know, a domain original product, or a third-party product or competitor, how do we help real estate agents save time? And I'm excited for some improvements that happen there. And for us, it's about just creating a better experience. You know, some of you know that all homes, the, the Canberra portal, the ACT portal, is owned by domain. We've rolled out a bunch of improvements there in terms of just making the map experience more beautiful help people find things more quickly. We're always trying to improve that app and using those learnings to improve the domain experience You know, for seekers, which is ultimately a great thing for people who are trying to sell their house. So there's some of those things I'm excited about. I'm very excited to speak to many of your audience about that face-to-face over the next few months. Yeah, well, we'll definitely have to keep in touch about those things because it sounds exciting. Thanks, so the Leadership Diaries. Yes. Finally, we're here. And in case you're not familiar with it, it's just a series of rapid-fire questions that we yes. ask leaders such as yourself to help up-and-coming leaders in the industry. So are you ready? I'm ready. Thank you for being a part of the diary. I'm very grateful. Born ready. Well, actually, I'm being held to account by a few people I've done this with now, and I'm saying it again publicly, but there's going to be an elite agent annual at the end of this year, and the leadership diaries finally will end up in the book that I've been promising for years. So I'm looking forward to that book. I'll be looking forward to read that. We're going to try to hold you accountable for getting that book out. Absolutely. (laughs) That's what good leaders like you do. Hold me accountable. So, you know, like here it comes. All right. Okay, John, what was your first job and what did it teach you? I was 12. My my best friend at school, his dad, was actually an entrepreneur and he owned about 20 or 30 different properties all across Sydney. And back in the day, we didn't have accounting software. My job was to do what's called the trial balance. This 12-year-old kid, just basically getting receipts, reconciling them, writing them in, and then adding up, you know, how much tax he owed. So that was my first introduction to work and actually introduction to real estate. Yeah, wow. I do remember the trial balance because 
I think back then I was working for Solution 6. There you go. Oh, my goodness. We can dig into that some other time. (laughs) (laughs) What is the most important thing you're working on now and how are you making that happen? Instead of working on in terms of professionally or like my own personal improvements? It could be either, actually. I'll talk about a personal example because I think, you know, some of you know I'm lucky to have two young girls and a third soon on the way. One of the things that I realize is the most important thing is to manage my attention. You know, I used to be obsessed with time management and then kind of time energy management. The most precious commodity I have is my attention. And I have basically come to accept that I cannot multitask. I think I can, but I cannot. So if I really want to value somebody, I need to give them my, not just a part of my attention, but my full attention. And my full attention is, I don't want to say it's the greatest gift, but it is probably the most costly gift that I can give someone. And that's where people, particularly folks at work and my kids, go like, wow, my wife will go like, wow, that is what you can give me that I really, really value. And so I'm working on that. To do that, it's a bit Marie Kondo. You've got to remove a lot of clutter from what you're doing, what you're thinking. You've got to do less. But that's my goal for work and for family. How do I give my full attention to things I've committed to? And I think if we're able to do that at work, that would be better ideas, more valued people, you know, who can develop more space, a better pace. So that's what I'm working on right now. 100%. I agree. Multitasking is a myth. (laughs) Definitely a myth. Well, maybe there's some superhumans out there, but that's not me anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What does the first hour of your day look like and how does it go after that? Are you like a 5am clubber or otherwise? You did talk about managing energy just a second ago. So, The termination test my first hour of the day comes from how early we can get to bed the night before. Right? That to me is the ultimate driver. It also comes from one other thing, which is my, and I'll say this publicly so I admit to it, I no longer sleep with my phone next to my bed. I now plug it in into a bathroom that is you know, at least 20 meters away. So, you know, it's there if I need to check in the middle of the night or something. But like, ultimately, it is not just, it's not too easy to check and be distracted. And so for me, the first time my day I analyzed was actually full of me lying in bed, think I'll spend five minutes on the phone and, you know, accidentally spending half an hour. Now is I'm in bed. Hopefully our kids have not gotten up just yet. And me and my wife can just chat and talk about how we slept, what's going on the day, all that kind of fun stuff. And then I will get up. And then what I will try and do is quickly check my phone, not stand there and do it, and then do some exercise. And so for me, I just set up a little gym out the back. And one day, Sam, I'll show you my setup. You know, it's just a gym with a few weights and a spin bike and then a piano, a piano keyboard. And I love to play the piano. And so this morning, I checked my phone, got into my clothes as soon as possible, walked down to the house out the back, you know, which has the piano, and sat down and just banged out a few songs. And it's detached from the house so people can't hear me, I think. Didn't wake the kids or the neighbors up, I think. Uh, and just try and ideally get into a different headspace. Hopefully spend some exercise, watch a bit of TV or listen to podcasts, such as your own, is what I love to do, and then go back and then the first hour has elapsed. Yeah, what an incredible way to start the day. Look, as a card-carrying member of the Peloton cult, I've got to ask you, is your spin bike a Peloton bike? It is not a Peloton bike. It is a cheap uh, pro-form bike I picked up on Facebook Marketplace for 200 bucks. Because <laughs> my next question was, who are you on the leaderboard? And, you know, can we <laughs> anyway. Next, what an incredible way to start the day. Okay, can you name someone that's had a tremendous impact on you as a leader? Yeah, I mean, there's so many folks who have had a tremendous impact on me. The one person who I did want to choose is actually, I've been lucky enough to have a business coach for the past 10 years. When I was a director at Google, this is back in 2014, I started having a guy called Brian, he's in America. And I think what I've come to really value in life is, I think there's a saying, the older you get, the less friends you have. You know, or someone says to me, hey, John, now that you're 35, there's a bunch of guys, they're like, just be prepared. You're not going to make too many more friends from now on in. It's like, oh, and actually I found that to be true. 
And so folks who have known me, I think for a long period of time, I have had exponential value in my life. This person, Brian, is a coach for me. He's someone who just knows me, knows my flaws, knows that balance between encouraging you know, and kind of reprimanding, helping me remember things that I have forgotten about times where I've seen this thing before. And you know, I choose Brian as symbol. I'm very grateful for his influence on my life and developing as a leader and being the kind of leader that hopefully people want to follow. There are many people in my life, but it's friends from business school, family, my wife, you know, who have played that role in my life. And I'm just so grateful, more grateful as time goes on. And there's less of those folks you pick up. Yeah, absolutely. Good leaders are always learning. Is there anyone that you're learning from right now? There's a lot of people I'm learning from right now. I think it's probably my team. One of the things I've tried to do over the past year is have the chance to, you know, assemble just a really fantastic leadership team. And I'll call it a few of those folks. I mentioned Frank before, Frank, the CEO of RealBase. He's just an extraordinary leader. He's always challenging. Like, John, did we really have to have that meeting? You know, or John, let's do our, meet, our next meeting, our next meeting, Frank, and I'm going to say this so I don't back out of it. We're having it in a sauna and an ice bath. That's where we're having our six-week wow. development chat. So let's do something. The great ideas that come out of it. So that is our chat. I find him inspirational. You know, I've got two folks, Angus Ferguson and Bell Sinclair are on my team. They're long-term domain stalwarts. Bell's been there for over a decade. Gus is the founder of Real-Time Agent, which was bought by Domain about five years ago. I find them so inspiring. They know everyone in the industry. They are people who have not necessarily had the same opportunities I have to work in America or things like that, but they bring amazing things that I have not seen, and they learn so much from things I can bring to the table. And so when I think through my team, I'm just surrounded by people who are inspiring me, pushing me, and it means that I have to up my game because these people will work anywhere. Why the hell would they work for me? I've got to lift my game. So that's who I'm learning from right now. Amazing. Where do great ideas in the business come from or what's a recent great idea that you found from somewhere in the business and implemented? You know, a lot of my journey in coming to Australia was to learn how to be a C-suite leader. So I'm the chief revenue officer. I've never played that role before. Even when I managed bigger teams and bigger budgets at Google and at Uber, I was not reporting to the CEO. I was not having interactions with the board. And so for me, that's been a real leap in terms of my management style because when you are at that level, you need to learn how to be hands-off. Or put differently, if the good ideas are coming from you, you're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. You've got to create that environment. And so for me, it's been about creating distance, space, autonomy. And uh, my boss, Jason, our CEO, has this great phrase, which I've, you know, I've come to understand and use a lot more, which is, John, or whoever it is, it's your decision. You make it and I'll back you. And for me, what that's saying is like, I trust you to make the decision. And it's not like, oh, you you get the decision right, I'll take the credit. You get the decision wrong, then I've got your head. It's like, no, no, you made the decision. And that decision goes wrong, it's on me. And the decision goes right, you get the praise and the glory. And for me, that's the environment I want to set up. And partly that's selfish because actually the more I can do that, the more I can spend on strategic things or time with family or time building things that only I can do. And if I want to really lead an elite team, they need to have the space to grow. And so that's what I've done. And recently it was reported we've gone through an organizational excellence where a lot of things we're doing now is having a single point for the customer. Demand is like 20 or 30 different products. You know, they're different sales teams. Now it's a single sales team. We've created like this customer solutions team, which is what Angus Ferguson is running. And these ideas came from the business. No doubt I had biases on these things. They're similar to what we've done at Uber and at Google. But for me, it was about creating a journey where they're going out there doing their research. Yeah, they might interview people like me, coming to their own conclusions. And it's for me also to say like, hey, these are your ideas. I'm going to back you. I'm going to back you. And I'm so excited to see what's come out of it and what that will mean for, for our sales team this year. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you've got to create the environment and then actually I really love that and then back your team to make the calls. If they don't feel that you've got their back, right, if they don't feel they can have that autonomy, then it's okay for a while. Like when people are new to the business, they do need you to hold their hand. You shouldn't lean out too much because they need you to show the ropes. There comes a point where great folks, they need to have the space to grow because they're pushing. They want to become you. They want to become the CEO. And that's exactly the kind of people I need to work for me. So a lot of my job is actually leaning out and creating that space and having the wisdom to know when to lean in. So that's a lot of the challenge for me as a leader right now. Yeah, amazing. So I'm not sure that you've done too many job interviews lately because it sort of seems <laughs> like the domain team's been sort of growing by acquisition and stuff like that. But what is your favorite question to ask someone in a job interview and what does their answer tell you? So I must be a little provocative here. At Google, we went through this journey where, you know, Google had this reputation for like these funky interview questions. I remember back in the day, early 2000s. Isn't it? The way you yeah, go for it. Determine your Googliness or something like that. I remember Jason said something yeah. like that to me, yeah. One of the four criteria that we had, which actually was a good one. Googliness is basically some combination of good intention, interest, excitement. And what are the things that make you googly? Oh my goodness, when I said it first. <laughs> googly. That was one of our five, four criteria. I'll talk about my four criteria shortly. But back in the day, Google had this reputation for really interesting interviewing. Like a way we used to recruit engineers back in the early 2000s is there's this highway that leads from Silicon Valley to San Francisco. And we would just put this number up there, this number where if you knew mathematics, you would know there's an equation that sits behind that number. And basically the goal was you look at that number, that equation, and it would lead you to type in some things into Google that would lead you to the interview kind of like page for an advanced interview placement. But what happened as we interview a lot of people at Google is we realized that there's a lot of really curly questions and they actually were not a good predictor of who makes a good performer at Google. They actually serve the main role. And our previous HLE, Laszlo Bock, writes a book on this, you know, where called Work Rules, which is pretty much around that actually they serve to make the interviewer feel really intelligent and was not a good distinguisher of whether who was a good candidate or not. So what we eventually did, and the interview practice I come today is, it's less to me about a single question. And what I like to do is I like to lay out the framework for what I find, what I think will make a successful person in this role and have them talk against it. So, you know, the interview I have done is we've hired a new commercial lead. We've hired a new uh, head of operations, just uh, some amazing people who've joined our organization. What I'm trying to do, both to sell them on the role and to help them self-select as the right thing for them, is describe to them the four things to me that make a great leader, which is strategic agility, the ability to collaborate with people in different teams. If you're running a sales team, how well can you sell and build customer love? And then lastly, the strategic agility. So strategic, no, I got them mixed up. Strategic agility, cross-functional collaboration, uh, people leadership, you know, and their ability to sell or run an operations team. And I lay out that criteria. I basically ask them to rate themselves against that criteria. And I found that the best single way for them to both give me a tapestry of their life, of their career through what matters, because all those four things are a must-haves for the role, and also for them to think about, look, oh, actually, can I bring these things? Am I excited of these things? I find a very helpful question to tip the scales either way. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about there about what leadership looks like at work. What does leadership look like at home for you? So we're very lucky at home. As you know, my wife is American, so she's been over here for a year. We're in between baby two and baby number three, and we've been in the position where she has not had to both do a job and do family stuff at the same time, right? And different families and positions, we've come in and out of that situation. And the reason I say lucky is it is, I mean, many people have, have, have gone and conquered through that. It's tough. It's tough if you're just doing one of those things, and it's very tough if you're doing both. 
And so who knows what will happen in terms of our career and family management choices. But what that has meant is the delegation that we've had with regards to, you know, who's spending majority of time with the kids and organizing those things has not had to be split 50-50. She has been able to spend what time she was spending on work, you know, on a lot of the kids' organization, which, you know, is endless, right, in terms of what you're doing even for young kids. And so for me, what we try and do is have a clear set of roles, you know, in the house and pretty much during the daytime, I'm doing my job, you know, the nine to five or whatever the hours are job. For her, her nine to five job is a combination of looking after the kids and doing a lot of family-related administration during the day. And then when it gets nighttime, it's on. It's 50-50. And I find the biggest struggle is because they have spent more time with their mum, I need to give them my full attention so that if we're both in the room, I have the ability to do things, you know, because they're going to default to getting their mum to help them, to feed them, to bathe them. And I'm trying to do as much as possible, particularly that my wife has been expecting, so that my wife does as little as possible. So my goal is to get to at least 50-50 by trying to do close to 100% you know, outside of the hours of nine to five. And in the end, it hopefully works out to be about 50-50. And that's my goal in this phase of our life. Yeah, I was going to say, it must be hard for you because you've got such a, you know, I would say a full-on type of role there in the C-suite yeah. domain. And so when the balance tips in the other way, how do you manage it? Like, you know, and, and work-life balance is a big question in the real estate industry at oh, the moment. Oh my yeah. So how do you sort of make sure that you get enough time outside of work for the family? You know, we mentioned at the start of this about the myth of multitasking. I think me truly grasping that has led to me to compartmentalize my life. So let me just break that down first principles. If I recognize that I can only effectively spend my attention on one thing at a time, what therefore do I do? Because as you said, like people like you and me, we like passionate about work. We love thinking about work. Family is important, but Work tends to dominate because it's always interesting, always thinking. So if I give work a inch, right, it's going to occupy my mind. I will not be 100% present with anyone else, family, friends, you know, whatever it is. And so what I'm trying to do is create guardrails. So for me, my day is 8 to 5 o'clock. And in that time, that's meeting time. That should be work time. Now, some things will happen, you know, particularly when traveling outside of that. But generally, that's the default. 45 hours a week is what I want to give to the main on a regular, predictable basis. I therefore need to figure out with work how many meetings I commit to that can fit inside there. Because I can't be like, oh, 45 hours, sure, I'll do 40 hours of meetings and cram the emails into five hours. It's not going to happen, right? Because we need to spend our time on strategy and thinking. So for me, a lot of what sits behind that 45 hours is, and my team has seen this, this is a giant spreadsheet. And what I'm doing is constantly trying to refine this spreadsheet, which is what is the 20 hours of recurring meetings? So I can have 10 to 15 hours of ad hoc meetings so I can spend 10 to 15 hours of preparation so that everything is done within 45 hours, including the shocks that will come from the market, from team, or things that will just happen. Once I can do that, I can compartmentalize that, then I need to create almost this boundary between work and personal. And so for me, particularly when I'm working from home, I need to make sure I put away my phone, put it out of reach, like I do when I'm trying to sleep now. Right? I need to make sure that you know, my phone is not on notifications, that I can create as many physical boundaries as if I had left the office and there was no way for the office to come. If I do not have that, that there's no way I give my full attention. Or if something, if I do, and then something distracts me, it'll take me an average of 28 minutes to come back and give my full attention again. Yeah. And so this is a work in progress. It's hard, particularly folks like us who love what we do. You've got to create those really kind of boundaries. Otherwise, you know, work will just invest everything. And in the end, that's not what I want for me or my people. I believe sustainability comes from great family, from great physical health, from great time with yourself. That's the kind of way that people can spend decades at a company and that's what we need to build for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think I need to rewind this and actually go 
over what you just said about <laughs> 40 hours in great, great detail because, you know, like, oh, I'm actually going to pick my diary apart after this now and have a look and see see how I go with the regular meetings versus ad hoc meetings versus prep time because I think if you don't schedule the prep time, it's a killer. It's a killer. Well, Sam, if you want, I'm happy to offer my free consulting services and a copy of that spreadsheet. I'm sure I'll learn a few things from you like, as a pretty successful small business owner. There's things that you had to do to be successful, but we're all on this journey together and ultimately the outcome is going to be a longer and a better life for us and our families. That's what we're working for. Yeah, amazing. Well, John, I'd like to thank you for joining me today and wish you all the best with the new arrival in February. Such an exciting time. And three girls, you're a lucky man. <laughs> thank you, Sam. I'd always dreamed of being in a house full of women and now today, you know, it's going to happen. <laughs> thank you. I'm no, joking aside, I'm very, very grateful that we have the opportunity to have a family. And I'm, I think I joke that I'll be well looked after my old age. So, you know, no pressure on my daughters, but that is the expectation. But I'm grateful to be in a place and, and hopefully an industry that is supportive of, of work-life balance. So, yeah, absolutely. So there's one final question, as you probably know, that I like to ask everyone on the podcast, which is if there was one piece of advice you'd like to leave everyone with for 2023, what would it be? My piece of advice I thought through this, and I was going to raise the attention while we talked about it, is we're still in the season where people have New Year's resolutions. My encouragement to you is to have no more than two very practical New Year's resolutions and to make them very simple and very actionable, right? So for me, you know, the one which I shared before is I want to not sleep with my phone next to my bed. That's the one. And the second one is I'd like to get to bed by 11 o'clock. They're two simple things, right? They're two things that hopefully are are very doable. There are two things that are very upstream. So if I get those two things right, it doesn't solve everything, but a lot of good things happen. I get enough sleep. I get time to exercise. I don't get distracted. I don't waste time on things I don't want to be doing. So I would encourage you before January closes out, please think of those two simple things. Don't give up. Even if your uh, news resolutions have already failed, try and think of one or two simple things that you can stick to. And if they're successful, you can build on that. But your goal is to think of two things, do them enough times, becomes a habit, becomes automatic, and then maybe tackle two more. Yeah, great advice. John Fong, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Sam. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you, Leadership Diaries listeners. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elevate podcast. With thanks to connectnow.com.au. Don't forget to get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast. Visit joinaliteagent.com. 